Hello and welcome to the Pharma Forum podcast. I'm your host, Jonah Comstock, Editor-in-Chief at Pharma Forum, and I'm joined today by Leah Householder, Executive Vice President and Managing Director for Technology and Data Solutions at Cineas Health, and Newly Gregory, Vice President of Decentralized Clinical Trial Operations at Cineas Health. This podcast is sponsored by Cineos Health. We're going to be talking about a report that was recently released that Leah wrote, Cineos Health's 2023 Health Trends Report. And this is far from the first one of these you've put together, right, Leah? It's true. I've been doing this for for years. It's one of um, the most fun parts of my job. And you're very kind to say that I wrote it. I work with hundreds of people across our company who work on the front lines of healthcare, including my incredible editor, Neil Gross, to to bring this to life every year. But yeah, it is one of my passion projects. Welcome to the show, Leah, and welcome, Newly. Thanks, guys. Really pleasure to be here today. So we're not just going to be talking about the report. We're going to be zooming in on the first trend of the report, and there are, I think, 12 in, uh, that, that are covered. Um, so we'll have a, a link to that, and, and people who are interested can can check out it in its entirety. Uh, but the first trend is, is about AI and uh, that is obviously a topic that is very hot right now all across the healthcare sector, if not uh, industry in general, um, and particularly in pharma. So I'm excited to chat with the two of you about this, this section on AI, finally fit for purpose. So first of all, um, tell me a little bit about that title and, and what it means. Uh, what has changed in AI uh, that that gives us optimism about about 2023 being a high impact year for it. Well, what I'm particularly excited about in that title and the reason that we called it Finally Fit for Purpose is that every new technology in our lives, um, whether you're thinking about professionally or personally, it grows through a cycle of promise to performance. And what that means is that that trajectory often begins with what feels like a frenzy of experimentation. That means your best friend got an iPhone two years before you did, or, or it means your competitor tried AI three years before you did. But that frenzy of experimentation then tends to bifurcate into some users um, give up. It didn't work for them. They, they couldn't figure out how AI would deliver the business case that they were looking for in the very short term. But then other organizations really commit to ongoing iteration. And that's what we watched with AI. We watched a lot of organizations try it. We kind of bifurcated into who was going to commit to it long-term and who didn't see immediate results. And uh, those ones that committed really got us to a point that we are able to see very right-sized goals that are turning out to move entire markets of users from skepticism to new definitions of value. So. I'm excited about that moment. When I think about this year, I think AI is slowly but very resolutely emerging from what might've felt like initial discouragement, not exactly knowing how to use it, to true value momentum and uh, an industry change. So that's that's what I'm watching. I can tell you a couple of stories, but I'd love to hear from, from Newly before I get all chatty again. Yeah, Newly, what's your take? For me, it's, it's more about, like you say now, going from that first iteration into scalability. You know, so I think we've had some early adopters try some nice use cases. And now it's in some cases that scalability um, where actually we've dipped our toe in the water. And now we have some practical solutions that we can bring day by day that are really adding value. 
I think the other thing, and, you know, AI is such a big word, you know, and then when we start adding machine learning to that and we add in natural language processing to that, you know, suddenly our tools in our toolbox are much, much broader. And the other thing I see is that there are maybe some of those early adopters going to scalability, but there are also new players that are still playing and bringing new ideas. And again, you know, I'm very privileged place in our organization to really understand and see some of these new innovative companies coming to market and applying those sorts of technologies in new ways. So I think 2023 about is about scalability, but also about expansion into other areas and new areas. Yeah, I think that's a I, I think what you're saying about the early adopters is a is a huge, a huge component of what we're watching for 2023. So there were early examples, like an example we can talk about um, with an eye hospital in India, we can dig into a little bit, but there were like there were very early examples that AI and machine learning were very compelling. But what people were looking for and what was hard to build a business case around was consistency and cost efficiency. And that's hard to achieve when you're an early adopter. But now that those use cases are in place, now that we've seen those examples are in place, then we're able to start to think about how you're able to scale this to bring new efficiencies to clinical trials, uh, new ways to think about commercial success, et cetera. Um, that example I was talking about, Nule, I know you and I've talked about it a lot. It's um, that uh, Aravand um, Eye Hospital in India. And it, it it's five years ago that we had one of the best initial examples of AI and machine learning. So that's how long we've been starting to see this trend come alive. Um, but it was uh, Google's um, health off, offshoot, uh, Verily, that they worked together to help that hospital solve a really fundamental problem, which was creating access to treatment for diabetic retinop retinopathy, which is a condition that can cause blindness if untreated. And it's very common. It's very common in India. It's very common around the world, actually. Um, but treating it is a challenge in a hospital that's caring for nearly 2,000 people a day and a country with only 11 eye doctors per 1 million people. So what Verily did, what Google did, was be able to, to use AI and machine learning to try to figure out how can I take the expertise of those doctors who are treating it and turn it into something that can take some of the workload off of it. Um, so they built a system that in seconds detects eye disease signals and medical scans. And the, the way they were able to do it and what I think we're learning coming into this year is it was very much human-led learning. So the only reason the system worked, the reason that it was able to be so efficient is that uh, they collected 100,000, I think, images of human eyes. And then it was ophthalmologists who, who um, classified the likelihood of disease. So the machine, like when we say machine learning, what that means is that those doctors ta taught the machine how to learn what they learned. And they were able to say, based on what the ophthalmologist uh, showed with 100,000 different images, we're able to repeat that over and over and over again and continue to learn from it and get and get better. And what I'm excited about as part of this changing trend is that embracing of it's not the machine can do what humans can't do. It's that the machine can learn from humans and how we put those two together. So there, there is this, this sense that uh, that I that I'm getting from from both of your answers that it's not that you know a new technology broke through last year and now AI is is good enough. It's more like the technology has been here. It's been getting better. It's going to continue getting better. But we've overcome some sort of 
or we're overcoming some kind of institutional hurdle towards really using that technology in in more of the places where it can create a big benefit. I mean, is that a fair reflection? Yeah, I think so. And I think also it's it's about identifying new use cases. So, you know, Leah gave there a very, you know, specific example based on a, you know, very specific need for a very specific disease type. You know, I think that whole premise of how can we teach a computer to streamline, actually we see that every day in our everyday lives. I think in healthcare, obviously because you've got patient safety, at at you know at the heart of what we're doing it's really important that it's done right you know when you're in the supermarket and the machine gets muddled up to whether you've bought an apple or an orange you know it's it's not life or death stakes you know when you're starting in that healthcare that rigor around it and the quality that we need the repeatability that we need the 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 margins of error that we need are, are very different and i think that's where you know, as the technology has got better and better, we're able to do that. So again, you know, we're working with a company at the moment who's looking at uh, or has developed AI to help with patient screening. You know, this is a really, um, you know, laborious uh, process for sites. It's an underrecognized cost for sites. You know, generally speaking, in a clinical trial, we start paying uh, paying sites from the point that they consent a patient. We don't recognize the fact that it might have taken them a number of hours to be able to identify that patient and bring them forward to enrollment. And, you know, we don't we only pay for the one that comes to consent. We don't pay for the other five that never made it that we had to screen through. You know, so that's actually, you know, a real hidden cost for sites that actually stops them being productive, stops them being streamlined. And so AI has that promise of actually being able to read electronic health records, read unstructured data within electronic health records for us to be able to screen much, much larger quantities of patients to automate that. And again, led by humans teaching the system about what's, you know, what's in, what's out, the the subtleties of, of the different disease areas. And then what that does is it puts forward a short list for the site to then work on. That obviously is great for for us and great for sponsors in that we are now able to, you know, expand the funnel. We're able to identify patients much faster. We're able to drive enrollment much faster. And obviously with that then comes all those cost efficiencies of being able to, you know, literally shorten that distance from lab to life, taking those that clinical trial development and really accelerating that. So so it, you know, but but a few years ago that the subtlety of of the quality of reading that unstructured data was maybe not there that gave it that value proposition or or made that return on investment. You know, and again, like kudos to the early adopters here, a little bit like Leah said to the at the outset, was actually those early people will have gone through that pain of like, oh my God, I spent ages doing all of this and now it still hasn't given me what I need or half these patients aren't right anyway. And then that iteration after iteration that that again means that we now have scalable solutions but also i think that's that thing of okay you know we take that patient recruitment and then you think about okay well how do i take that same thing and adapt it for external control arms how do i take that same thing and help look at it for you know trends and anomalies in wearable data 
you know, so you take the sort of base product and then it's almost like, and again, like the technology companies can run wild in terms of thinking about all the different applications for it. And that's where, for me, we've got to as an industry, that confidence that these things actually bring real value. And then the ability to be able to adapt that into different areas. So successful use cases beget more use cases. It's yeah. true. And I want to answer your question too, Jonah, but I want to, I want to just flag something that Nuli was talking about and, and maybe go a little bit deeper on it. One of um, the things that you mentioned was the cost of being able to screen patients, the cost of the site. And you and I have both looked at the same statistics over and over again about the shocking number of trials that don't recruit on time. I think it's 80%. And the data, too, about something like 27% of your sites tend to recruit 80% of your patients. So it's, it's a very difficult, it's a very difficult industry dynamic to actually be able to meet the milestones that we put forward. Um, what you're talking about is the hidden costs, like what we don't see about what a site really goes through. And I know that's kind of a passion point for both of us. Do you want to say anything more about that, like in terms of how we help sites be successful in this new, very complicated, very competitive dynamic that we're in today? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I, I think, you know, we already t- touched on it, The that hidden cost, you know, in terms of the manual process. So, and also like the repetitive process. So let's let's take, for example, oncology. Okay. So in oncology, actually a lot of the time that we're doing a clinical trial, you're trying to identify patients where they've just progressed from one stage of disease going to another. Do you know what I mean? So you've demonstrated that their current therapy is not effective and they're now looking for a subsequent line of therapy. And, you know, unfortunately in the cancer space, you know, there are, you know, the progression continues and there is always an opportunity for further lines of treatment and, you know, where where drug developers are really focusing. So in that instance, you know, a patient that was not eligible six months ago actually will now be eligible. But you might have screened that patient six months ago and identified, well, actually, they haven't progressed on current therapy. They wouldn't be eligible for the trial. You know, you then get into a situation where actually... Again, we we have sites at the moment who manually will track that patient month on month waiting for them to progress. Now, the trouble that we have is that actually quite often you have to start therapy. You know, if the patient's progressed, you want to start a subsequent line of therapy within actually quite a short window. So if the research nurse happens to be on holiday that week or actually the investigator is having a, a moment because they've completely forgotten because they've got something else on or they're setting up a different trial... They forget, oh, hang on a second, that was the patient that we had for a child. Oh, well, you know, I've started them on this other therapy now, so they're not eligible anymore. And suddenly you've just lost, you know, what could be a very valuable patient. This is a perfect example where AI has loads of promise to be able to, you know, continually screen and report out patients. So the moment that that CT scan gets uploaded to say that the patient has progressed and they're now eligible for lines of treatment, it almost, you can program it to come up and say, okay, here is your list for this week. You correlate that with the, you know, the weekly departmental meeting when you're reviewing patients and deciding what lines of treatment. So that's a perfect example, actually, where in historically, we've had to rely on, you know, really, you know, highly qualified, highly on it staff to remember 
different patient groups to do that manual piece. And we can take that automation out, out, you know, add that automation in for them, make it much easier. I love that thought of the continually report out. I think if if you and I were to go back and look at our strategic plan for this year across the entire company, everything we're working against is how do we prioritize people's time? And, and AI and clinical trials is one way to do that. It's not the, it's not the only way, but um, trying to figure out how people who have fewer resources, higher expectations, how do I let you work to the highest and best um, use of your time? So Jonah, to go back and answer your question, I think what initially happened in industry is we saw these overly ambitious AI implementations and we got stuck in this world of like one step forward, one step back. Um, without mentioning a name, I think probably most people listening remember the early stage cancer experiments um, that were co-created by some of the biggest names and research and technology. And the hype versus the reality kind of got us to this collective meh for many in industry, like meh, how am I going to use it? And so I love Newly's example of, of focusing on the sites. Like I love the thought of how do you turn something that I was curious about into something that just makes my life easier every day. How do I get from meth to tell me more? Because I need this help. I absolutely need this help. So as we're talking about what the immediate impact is and why we're talking about it this year, I, I mean, I, I think Newly and I are totally aligned on this. I think there are four things. I think speed is one. We are in a place right now where rapid experimentation through AI models is happening in 10 to 12 weeks, not 10 to 12 years. We're in a world of natural language processing, which is exactly what Newly was talking about, how you take unstructured data, like um, uh, like uh, like uh, medical notes versus drop-down menus. How do I take that unstructured data and turn it into meaning that I can make decisions about? How do I use it to do a better job of patient and physician finding? How do I use it to do image classification that moves um, clinical understanding forward much, much faster? And obviously there's gonna be continued evolution here, but but that's the pace we're working on right now. So, so I think the other piece that actually we should add on to that as well is actually new situations where actually the human brain just physically isn't able to do it. So if I think about the wearable space in digital biomarkers, okay, so in, a, in an old world where a patient goes to site once a month, we've got one discrete measure, okay, and that's very easy for us to look at over time. If you're taking about wearable devices or sensors, you know, actually, you might be having a reading every 30 seconds, 30 seconds, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. There is no way that a physician can look at that. And we absolutely then rely on AI to be able to identify those trends, identify the anomalies and present that to physicians to then be able to make clinical decisions. We take that one step further and then say, OK, well, this is the trend. So, OK, let's take blood pressure. The trend is that actually the blood pressure is rising. Um, and then, then you then can then say, okay, as a result of the blood pressure, when it hits this threshold, X happens. Do you know what I mean? And so that's when then actually you can then start using devices, data from devices and wearables to actually then create a new digital biomarker. And that would never have been possible without AI because you just physically wouldn't be able to consume that volume of data and you wouldn't be able to look at the forward trajectory. 
you know, and that's where those scales of data add loads of value, but cannot be done unless it's done alongside AI. So you're taking that us into the up. world of patient-generated data, which some in our industry say is some 99% of the healthcare data that's out there. Maybe there's no way to do this without AI. I don't know. Jonah, where do you want to take us? Like, I'm, I'm really, this, we are, we are open up, opening up even more doors than the trend had. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think that that, that latest point by Newly does raise an interesting question about trust, right? Because there's what AI can do, and then there's what we are ready to trust AI to do, and we being the researchers and also the regulators, right? So if you've got a new digital biomarker that's based on a, an AI that will be to some extent a black box, as you say, things that people literally can't process on their own because there's too much data, how do we get to the point where we accept a finding based on that biomarker and, and we don't have to worry that something's gone wrong at some point in the processing or there has been a bias based on how the models were trained, which we all know is is an issue. I mean, I see this as a big, for certain kinds of AI use cases, uh, a big potential blocker is is sort of just the, the trust and comfort and and in putting these things into the hands of, of an algorithm. But, but Jonah, so I would almost take that as a parallel to actually drug development. You know, we are scientists and we're asking that scientific question. So actually it's the same basis as when you're testing a product, you know, can you repeat the result more than once? You know, what's the variability? Um, you know, what's the intra-patient variability? You know, so I think for me, you take it back to basic science and you think about it just the same way as when you're developing a drug, you know, actually those basic scientific questions, you need to make sure that it is repeatable. You need to make sure that actually it's validated. You need to make sure, because again, you know, if we think and, you know, I, I work in an area where sometimes I'm spanning in clinical development, sometimes I'm going through medical affairs into commercialization, and actually those needs can sometimes be very different. You know, we're working with some customers where actually they're looking at, um, you know, technology to support their commercialization. And again, a wearable in a commercial space that's maybe a companion to a product for example, is going to have to have very, very different needs than when it's being used as a phase three endpoint. So I guess the point I'm making is that there will always be variability. And again, it always comes down to that p-value. You know, again, there's always variability in a clinical trial. But at the end of the day, you do the statistics, you draw a line in the sand to decide, right, this works or this doesn't. Yeah, I, I love what you were saying, Julie. It's almost kind of the reverse of the old phrase, uh, trust then validate. It's validate then trust. Yeah, um, and then the one right. other human element I'd add to it, because I could talk about what you just talked about for half an hour, but I, I won't. You made the great point. But the other human element of it is um, the uh, confidence and agility. So when I tell you that we can do AI experiments in 10 to 12 weeks, it's true. Like I can, we can build really interesting natural language processing models, image processing model, et cetera. But that's talking to a group of people who have built their confidence around those type of models in a two to three year horizon, maybe a three to five year horizon. So the change is not just the trust in the data, it's the trust in the process. 
and um, it's just it's work we're going to do together. We're gonna we're gonna as an industry we're gonna see results. We're gonna have things that we can validate. But it's it's changing not just scientific data but human processes in a way that um, is going to have a great impact over time in terms of uh, speed to market, in terms of speed to insight. But there's going to be discomfort in the middle, and that's just that's. That's work we've done together over time as we've changed the industry over and over again. I want to get more into that in a moment, but I think there's a question I should have asked at the very beginning, which is when we talk about AI, there's a huge range of things we're talking about or we could be talking about, right? Um, and and I think a lot of people, when they hear AI in pharma and they think about trends, they're thinking about uh, preclinical, right? And you mentioned, you know, DeepMind, AlphaFold in, in the report, you know, this stuff that where we're using AI uh, for drug development, you guys have been talking a lot about the more operational, clinical, and, and administrative, in some sense, use cases for AI. So what, is, this is where I get to the question, you know, should have been preliminary, but what ties all this together? When we say AI, uh, you know, a system that's, you know, doing this complex protein folding and a system that's, you know, tracking who's been contacted and making sure people don't get overlooked for, for clinical trials, what's the... What's the connective tissue? What's the definition you guys work to? Um, because obviously, at some of these things, you might say AI, and no, that's just a, you know, that's just computing, or that's just a, a good database management. What's the AI? Yeah, I think for me, the the underlying story is that where consistent human experience cycles can teach machine learning models. So, if a consistent human experience cycle, to go back to where we kind of started, is um, diagnosing eye disease. That's something doctors have done hundreds of thousands of times. Um, to Newley's example, if really uncovering a patient using unstructured data is something doctors have done hundreds of thousands of times, but it takes a lot of time for them to do, and machine learning could take what they've discovered and make it more, uh, put more speed and more consistency to it, that's where that's what AI is. AI is uncovering use cases to take human experience and make it faster. So the places that you're going to see it um, really coming to life in the coming years are definitely population health. So things like enabling screening at scale, um, global data, thinking very much about, um, I don't know, our last few years, thinking about how infectious diseases are flowing across borders as an example, uh, but really being able to take global data and make sense of what organizations should be ready for. Um, Again, to Newley's point, improve clinical trial execution. So more intelligent systems that can use things um, like quantitative systems pharmacology that can use things like um, uh, bringing forward additional relevant trial data, et cetera. And then, and then, of course, what we really, really hope, and I really hope it, that one of the final, one of the biggest executions of AI, not final, because of course it'll still continue to grow, but the the last one on my horizon is thinking about new vaccines and cures, how you're able to predict the structures of proteins, you're able, you're able to build 3D models, you're able to be able to do, um, you're able to be able to work with scientists around the world to fuel discovery and disease understanding. I hope that answered your question. I'm not sure. I get a little excited about this stuff. No, that was great. Uh, do you want to add anything, Nilly? No, I think... I don't know if it'll take us down a different tap, but but I a passion of mine is is around that consumerization of healthcare. You know, I think how some of our you know key players like 
your Googles, your Apples, your Amazons, you know, how they are using AI, again, in our everyday lives, and how they then adapt that into um, healthcare, I think is going to be, you know, really interesting. I think they have the potential to really change how how healthcare is. So, you know, I, you know, imagine a world where actually, you know, your Apple Watch is detecting, oh, actually, Nuli, your pulse rate has been up considerably, you know, consistently over a certain period of time. I think you should go and get that checked out. Or, you know, for example, you know, uh, morning, Alexa, you know, can you play me some Justin Bieber? Yeah, morning, Nuli, no problem. How are you feeling today? Oh, well, actually, I feel like I'm getting a migraine going on. Oh, that's because the house temperature is actually at 25 degrees Celsius. And we would recommend that actually you turn that down so that you are, you know, in a better environment. Do you know what I mean? So, so all of those things in terms of actually just integrating healthcare into our real lives. So that's where I always think like, you know, so to Leah's point about, you know, complex proteins, et cetera, you know, that real high science in terms of predictive modeling. But also the other, completely other end of the spectrum is just our everyday AI that whether we like it or not is, is all around us that actually we can, you know, map what we're Googling to be able to identify, oh, hang on a second, I think you, you know, or you're, you're sounding really wheezy, you need to go and order a new inhaler. Do you know what I mean? All of those things that actually I think will change how healthcare is delivered to us in the home, it will change our expectations and then for clinical trialists like myself, it'll be, OK, how do I now deliver a clinical trial in that new normal world? Um, you know, and that, again, that's going to be iterative. And we're fortunate enough to work with some early adopters, some innovators in this space that actually means that in, you know, three, five years time. Yes, it will be, you know, standard practice. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think at the moment we're, we're only limited by people's imaginations. Do you know what I mean? And that's quite limitless. So that's a great segue to what I wanted to talk about next. And I think this goes a little bit beyond the the borders of the report, but I, it's hard to have a conversation about AI right now, I think, without talking about creative AI, generative AI, chat, GPT, all, all of that stuff that's so in the public consciousness. Um, is there a place for for creative AI in, in pharma? Um, and, and also when we talk about fit for purpose, uh, and to me that almost seems like a contrast to the idea of like generalizable AI, which is a, this like holy grail, right? Of the AI that can do anything. Um, so those are two totally different questions, but I'll, I'll let you guys pick and choose, <laughs> um, which one you want to explore, but yeah, tie, tie the healthcare trend a little bit into the, the sort of zeitgeist, um, AI conversation for me. I love that you work the word zeitgeist into this conversation. It's one of my favorite words. Um, but uh, if thinking about chat, uh, GPT, and optimizing language models for dialogue, um, what I'm so interested in in that is that what powers your life powers your work. So the fact that that has become part of the zeitgeist in such an interesting conversation is going to make it much more easy for people to adopt and try tools like that professionally. Um, and that's so important to me because one of the great challenges that I, I deal with in working with um, uh, data integration and digital transformation is getting to the edge of an organization. It's not so hard to find an early adopter to try something new. So um, 
uh, some of the unstructured data Newly was talking about, some of the um, original AI experiments I was talking about, to find the first person in a company who will try that, not so difficult. To get to the 24,000th, not even sure if that's the right way to say that, but to get to like the very edge of the organization can be really challenging. And what makes it possible is when these technologies become part of our regular lives, our consumer lives, whether you're talking to your Alexa, you're building um, a really interesting recording with chat, uh, GPT, GPT, whether you're like any of those things that suddenly make a technology that feels foreign, like something you have to learn and becomes part of your everyday life really helps us create change so much more rapidly. The other thing I'll say is, don't get me wrong, like I, I don't think we're ever going to get to a place where actually we're just going to do like clinical trials on chat GPT. Do you know what I mean? I don't, I don't think that's going to happen. But but I do think there's a place for it in terms of modelling and hypothesising. So, you know, again, in my career, I've worked on some massive great big cardiovascular studies where you have to have huge sample sizes to be able to show your endpoints. You know, those studies are extraordinarily expensive to run. Now, if I'm a CEO of a pharmaceutical company, I'm having to make that investment, then I'm never necessarily going to get to a space where I'm potentially not going to make that investment. But imagine I do make that investment and then that clinical trial is negative. Like that, that is a, a, a huge, you know, risk, if you like. And actually, there's, I think, an opportunity where here and again, modeling of data, et cetera, has the opportunity to at least de-risk and hypothesize and test different hypotheses so that even if you, you know, are not reducing your margin of error, at least it's helping you to have maybe some informed decisions about protocol design or inclusion exclusion criteria, et cetera, so that you can model and hypothesize so that when you run your clinical trial, you know that you're asking the right questions, you're asking the right patients you're asking you know the in the right places and the right things and and I think that has a real power in itself just to again really make us much more effective in clinical development and delivery do you know what I mean actually reducing those things so imagine a world where actually you only have to do one clinical trial or you know two or three maximum because actually you've planned it all out you've tested those hypotheses in advance you know, and, and and therefore increased your success. So here's my example that I'll I, I think I'll connect to what I think I'll connect what we were saying together on. So we have one particular client who does roughly who's done roughly 200 AI experiments with us using this rapid process. And um, the way that they they've built the program up is they've they've elected to do that many in advance, and then people basically apply. Uh, to be able to do one of the experiments, to be able to have their challenge become the challenge. And I think it's so much easier for a leader to talk about why you would want to do it, why you'd want to be considered when you can talk about something like natural language processing being like the chat GPT thing that you saw. Like there's some there's some normalization of why you would try it, why you would go after an initial exploration of your clinical trial this way, or why you would ask this question about image processing, if it connects to something really easily in your consumer life. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. So we're getting towards the end of our time. I want to end with one last question. Um, as, as you think about AI, 
obviously there are a lot of people who express a lot of different kind of fears about AI. We talked a little bit about the black box sort of problem, but there's concerns about um, sort of over overpower or over giving too much responsibility. I don't know. There's a lot of things you could say. I, what I want to know is like your sort of your biggest AI um, excitement and your biggest AI uh, fear or, or discomfort or caution. <laughs> Should I go first? Hang on. <laughs> so I think my biggest excitement is that there are so many ways to adapt this. You know, and as I said earlier, I think we're only limited by our creativity. And I'm really excited to see, you know, how different people are going to take a new tool and apply it in different ways. And I think that has the opportunity to, again, to continue to iterate, to continue to apply it in new ways, in new areas. And so I think almost the sky's the limit. I guess my fear is that. Um, and again, I think Leah actually touched on it in the opening, is that just because we don't get it right first time, like, I, I worry that people will be disgruntled. Oh, it didn't, it, you know, I tried that AI thing. It didn't give me what I wanted and therefore we're not doing it anymore. That's slightly throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Do you know what I mean? I think, you know, we, we have to be responsible and realistic about what's possible and what's feasible. And again, this is where I think it's around, you know, especially for us at Cineos, we really make sure we meet our customers where they're at. So if you've got somebody who's really innovative, like, right, Newly, go for it. You've got free range here. We really want to push the envelope. We really want to do something different. And then you've got other people who are a bit more cautious, like, actually, I need you to demonstrate to me two or three case studies where this has been. So I think that's the thing. I think we have a responsibility to manage stakeholders, set some clear expectations around, you know, where we are on that innovation curve, what our likelihood of success is, where the risks are, so that actually we then have the opportunity to make sure it's successful. Or if it's not successful, that's okay, because it was only ever an experiment anyway. I think my excitement and fear are exactly the same. My excitement is the ability to scale human experience and knowledge to be able to affect more change in healthcare. And my fear is that um, the defensiveness that we all naturally have about scaling our own um, knowledge and experience, that it's hard to give away what you know and what has been so hard fought in your career to a machine um, and, and hope that it's able to do what you know you can do personally. But I, I think our courage and wisdom around that is our is is the next frontier, the next era of how we move healthcare forward. So, any other any other uh, final thoughts from the two of you, and anything you want to highlight or anything? I don't think anything from me, Leah. Anything else from you? Just a just a final thought from me. Um, every year when we publish this report, at least one colleague or client asks me a question to the effect of, it's impossible to predict the future, so why does working with trends matter? And I love that question for the same reason I love this conversation, because it points to both our need for immediate security about the unknown and our general uncertainty about the future. And when we're trying to figure out how do we plan for what lies ahead, trends are one answer to that. Discussions like this are are one answer to that. They're how we plan for a future that we do not know. Um, and 
AI and machine learning are going to be one way that helps us get there in a very efficient manner. So, Janai, I really appreciate the conversation today. Thanks for thanks for asking us these questions and getting Newly and I talking about even more that Upwork will do together. Awesome. Well, thank you both so much. Really enjoyed the conversation. Great. Thanks, guys. That concludes this episode of the Pharma Forum podcast. You can find more information about this episode, including a download link and information about other installments in the series at pharmaforum.com slash podcast. The Pharma Forum podcast is also available on iTunes, Spotify, Acast, Stitcher, and Podme, where you can find and subscribe by searching for Pharma Forum. And don't forget to visit our website where you can sign up for daily news and analysis bulletins and to follow us on Twitter at at Pharma Forum. Thanks for listening. Thank you.